Welcome to Rogue Bogues. This is the In Conversation series, episode nine. I'm excited. I have a very special guest who can take us behind the scenes on many different things specifically going on in Victoria to this point. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome David Limbrick. Welcome to Rogue Bogues. Thanks for having me. No worries. Well, you're a member of the Liberal Democrats, um, Southeast Metro Region, or, or where are you moving on to, to federal, but um, at least in that in that region from Victoria. But basically, I'm just going to give people a feel for what the party line is, essentially. It espouses smaller government, supports policies that are based on classical liberal libertarianism principles, such as lower taxes, opposing restrictions on gun ownership, supporting privatizing water utilities, increasing the mining and export of uranium and the relaxation of smoking laws. Is that all correct or was is, is it wrong from Wikipedia? Well, you know, it's Wikipedia, so they, they focus on... <laughs> Basically, the party's been around since uh, 2001 and all along our whole thing has been around defending the rights and liberties of Victorians and that's been our focus for 20 years now. And when you say, you know, when we say classical liberal or... Uh, libertarian principles. Effectively, what we're talking about is um, we oppose the initiation of force against other people. So, you know, we're, we are against uh, coercion. So, you know, the idea that um, different groups in society get targeted and uh, you, you mentioned, you know, gun ownership there, you know, gun owners are one group that gets targeted. But as we've seen more recently, there's lots of different groups in society that uh, get targeted for these um, overbearing restrictions from government and, and nanny state type laws. And we've opposed those all along. Yes, a smaller government. I mean, that's... Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, but don't want... Especially considering the times we're in right now, um, that's a, probably... A, those words are a godsend to many people, at least in Australia, I believe, with what's going on. So I think a lot of people would definitely like smaller government. But um, let's get a little bit to your background just so we can lead people in with, with your story. Um, just quickly, where, where did you grow up? Where were you born? And, and what did the, the family kind of kind of do for a living? Yeah, so I um, grew up in Cranbourne, which is you know part of the area that I represent now in Southeast Metro. Um, I grew up on a small sort of hobby farm. My dad, um, as a hobby, he used to uh, train and own racehorses, but his main job, he, he worked for the government. Um, my mum, she's retired now, but she was a secondary school teacher for her whole career. Uh, very passionate about teaching, and you know, I grew up in a small family. We had I have got one sister, and um, yeah, like we grew up around the Cranbourne area. Family wasn't really very interested in politics when I was growing up, so I didn't really come from a political background or anything like that. And um, yeah, I went through most of my childhood and even early adulthood not really being that interested in politics, I suppose. And when I went to university, I studied uh, computer science and, and physics and, um, yeah, ended up graduating in that uh, and um, went on to work in, in uh, an area called business intelligence and data warehousing, but basically collecting uh, data mostly for um, companies and then organising that and presenting it for uh, companies and ended up before I got elected, I reached a, you know, I was a senior manager in a, in a finance company in Melbourne. 
Yeah, many different companies. You went, you went to Federation University for, first and foremost, and then yeah. many different many different companies. Um, obviously, in the business IT solutions, you did. You did. Uh, were you in Japan for your two thousand four Saitama Prefecture Board of Education? Yes, yes. So I did take um, sabbatical leave for two years, and yeah, in two thousand and four, I went to Japan for two years as a assistant language teacher in um, in uh, senior high schools in Japan. So yeah, that was I don't know something I'd always wanted to do when I was younger was like learn an Asian language, and I never did that at high school. And then I sort of got into my late twenties and thought, all right, well, I'll just start taking classes on Saturdays, and then had a chance to apply for a Japanese government thing where they get foreigners to come over and help in high schools. And I applied for that and was successful. So I left Australia for a couple of years. And so, yeah, and then I ended up getting married in Japan in 2005. And um, uh, my wife and I decided to come back to Australia in 2006. So, yeah. Wife is Japanese or? Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. So it was, it was a worthwhile trip. Well, we actually met in Australia before oh, okay. I went. But yep. um, she was here on working holiday and we met each other here because I'd, I'd started meeting lots of Japanese people locally because I was, you know, learning the language and wanted to meet people who could speak Japanese so I could improve. Yep. And, um, yeah, we just so happened that when I went over there, we met up again and um, one thing led to another. And, yeah, now we've been married for uh, 16 years. So, yeah. Oh, awesome story! Awesome story. So then, 2018 was your first year, correct? When you when you um, were involved in in Victorian politics, Parliament. Yeah. So I started getting involved in politics originally. I started getting interested when I was first at university. Um, actually, the first thing that I was interested in was the first Iraq War. I opposed that. That was the very first protest I went to. Was um, opposing the Gulf War. And then originally, I suppose you could have classified me as a socialist and um, <laughs> I probably would have uh, been classified as that until sort of early 2000s. And then I came to the realisation that, um, you know, a lot of the beliefs around government control, I didn't agree with. And I, I went through a sort of political transformation and ended up embracing the um, the philosophy of liberty and I've been like that ever since I suppose so I, th I think everyone that comes to sort of a you know a libertarian position comes from somewhere else and I think a lot of libertarians come there from you know conservative side of politics and I'm I'm the opposite though I came to libertarianism from the the left side of politics I suppose and was that just because of research reading or was it were there some real life occurrences that happened or a mix of everything i look I, I a lot of the things that i believed in then i still believe in now like you know i i was always a really strong believer in freedom of speech um i always thought um you know, I, I was a big believer in drug law reform and I still am. But some of the things around uh, central control and central planning, I read a book called um, uh, Anarchy, State and Utopia by uh, Robert Nozick. And that convinced me around the idea of um, consent and just transactions. So the idea that 
people can interact with each other. And as long as there's no force involved in that interaction, it may be a transaction, you know, like you buy things from someone or it could be that you trade ideas or it could be that, you know, you agree to go on a podcast or anything like that. As long as the transaction is voluntary and free from coercion, then there's justice involved in that in that interaction. And then um, that thinking is like the core of, you know, libertarian philosophy and and the the socialist idea is around force you know forcing people into acting in certain ways if they don't agree and and i ended up rejecting that and coming around to the idea that uh voluntary action should be the core of a of a just society oh no doubt <laughs> there's no doubt about it as, as, as we can see um with everything going on today which we'll get into a bit later i guess to round this this intro off it begs a question and a lot of politicians get asked this why did you get into politics was it did you initially get into it to try and you know save the world save the suburbs save the state save the country but i mean what was the prime motivation besides obviously having interest in it to, to get involved and put your hand up yeah so i think i started following the the Liberal Democrats around 2006, 2007. And I got involved around 2012, 2013. I think I became a member around then. And the reason that I became involved is I felt like I was complaining about things that the government was doing. And I felt like I didn't want to be the sort of person that just whinges about everything, right? And we still live in a society where, you know, your actions can uh, influence things in the world. So I thought rather than complain about things, I should get involved. And so I started coming along to meetings. And then I, I originally ran as a candidate in 2014 state election. And um, then I got more involved in the party, ended up becoming state president and then I ran in the 2016 federal election and then ran again in the 2018 state election. And then we were successful. Then we were very successful. We ended up getting two two members elected. Uh, so myself and, and Tim Quilty in, in Northern Victoria region. And yeah, I mean, that's what it was about is uh, rather than, uh, you know, complain about the world, it's better to try and um, become engaged, I think, in politics and, and try and do what you can to influence things in a, in a direction that you think is, is just. Fair enough. Was, it, was there any kind of sticking points mainly why, why you got involved? Obviously, were there, were there one thing that you were like, I'm strongly against this, I need to put my hand up? Look, I think um, the one thing that had always concerned me was the gradual increase of the government control into into private lives and i think the thing that like was the that kicked it all off for me was around the original you know the the war on terror after after the september 11 bombings and what happened was you know there was this emergency but then after the emergency there was all these really draconian laws passed which i was concerned had the potential to you know, really disrupt and interfere with the freedoms that that we took for granted in Western society, and then ever since then we've seen this very very slow and gradual increase of government control into into people's lives, and then of course that's accelerated. You know, it's been on steroids ever since the pandemic came along, and I think what sort of happened is 
that um, what was already happening has just accelerated to such a dramatic degree now that sort of everyone's noticed it. You know, the, when things are happening slowly, it's like the you know it's like the the frog in the slowly boiling water thing. But during the pandemic, everyone was sort of shocked at just how much control. Uh, the government really has over your life and and it's sort of you know it's one of those things that's caused a lot of people to question you know who's actually defending our liberties here like who's pushing back against the government i think that explains a lot of why the ideas of classical liberalism have um you know found some sort of resurgence recently because people are concerned about it and want some way of of pushing back and and our philosophy provides a you know, a coherent uh, framework and a, and a way to think about things that that we've always been thinking about things this way. Yeah, no doubt. And I think that's a lot of people's questions with all of this have been exactly that. It's it's It just seems like everything, even in the pandemic, have, has just become very political. It's very this party versus that party. There's not many people that or any, many politicians that have come out and said, no, no, this is wrong. You know, we, we need a... I guess they've somewhat labeled freedom as a bad word. Some of these political parties, it's like, Oh, a free dumb D-U-M-B, you see those memes and all that kind of stuff. But no one really, I mean, I know you were a big advocate of it. Um, you stood outside of parliament, which we'll, we'll get into a bit later, but no one really pushed back on a lot of the narrative. And that, I, I guess that's why people were very, very frustrated. But just quickly, I'm a big advocate of, of politicians um, having, real life experience, um, whether it be in the private sector or especially running their own business, it seems like, you know, you've had some some pretty worldly um, experience going over to Japan for a couple of years, living abroad, obviously in numerous different companies in, in numerous different roles. Would you agree that, you know, that's a very, very important attribute for a politician to have because we're seeing more and more, especially in Australia, America to an extent as well, these lifer politicians and, and they all seem to have the same kind of rhetoric, the same demeanor about themselves where people that have been in the private sector or involved in small business, they just have a different way of thinking. Would, would you agree with that? Yeah, look, absolutely. I, I, look, I, I don't think that there should be rules around it, but I think um, people in a democracy should definitely look at the candidates that are putting their hands up and ask themselves, you know, what sort of experience in life does this person that wants to, you know, be a member of parliament, what sort of experience do they have? And um, and is it going to be, you know, relevant to what they want to do? I, that was one of my reasons for wanting to get involved is that I saw all these people who are controlling our lives and they've never, like a lot of them have never sort of worked in the private sector, a lot of them have never even worked in what you'd call, you know, normal jobs. Um, the typical career path for a lot of them is like they, you know, they maybe got a degree, they maybe worked as a political staffer and then, you know, maybe worked as a union shop steward or something for a few years and then ended up in parliament or on the other side, you know, um, maybe they got a job, you know, got a degree as a lawyer worked in private sector for for a little bit and then ended up getting into parliament that way um but i'm all for you know i think there should be uh diversity in parliament and certainly the people in parliament should reflect the the experiences of the people that they're meant to represent uh so yeah i mean i i haven't run my own small business but i've certainly worked in the private sector for you know close to 20 years in various different roles and I think a lot of people on the crossbench are actually like that. 
um, they're sort of outside of the political class, which is why the political class sort of looks down on them a lot. Yeah, well, you're essentially looking down at your people in, in, in that sense, and because I just don't understand, we see it relate to the last two years of coronavirus, is how can a politician understand what a small business owner is going through? How can a politician understand, even in a private sector, some of these, you know, they're not multinational corporations, but national corporations that hire a swath of people and have people all the way from minimum wage up to, to, to good salaries, I feel like it sh- almost should be, you know, you don't want to put a mandate on, obviously, but it should be a prerequisite that, you, that you're in in some sort of field that's not just an arts degree or, so, or a law degree that then goes into being, you know, in the union shop front into politics because I just don't, I don't know how else you'd understand how hard it is. And, and we demonise people who are in corporations and, and, and even small to mid-sized businesses in Australia. As they get labelled as the big greedy, you know, owner of the business and, you know, um, paying people bugger all to, to prop up their business while they're reaping cash. It's really hard to run a small business in Australia. There's so many you know, think boxes you have to tick and, and you know, super and insurance and this and that. And everywhere you're looking, it's just a lot of bills to support your staff. And people do that happily, but they really get no no support from the government. So I, I, I would, you know, I know you're trying to say, you know, it shouldn't be mandated, but I, I think it's it definitely, I would, I would vote for a politician who's ran his own business or been in the private sector, you know, nine times out of 10 over someone who's just been a lifelong politician, because I just don't see how they, the very people they represent, which is the working class, how they they would relate to, shit, I can't turn my lights on right now. Shit, I've got to, I know so many people throughout this pandemic who have said, I'm just keeping, I'm, I'm treading water and slowly losing money week to week, but I'm doing it just so I can keep my staff on so they don't lose their jobs. And it, it, the more and more people you talk to, it becomes more evident that that's the case. And, and okay, job keeper, job seeker, there were payments for a little while, but the restrictions, the on and off again of, of lockdowns have just absolutely depleted it. So I think it's a very important attribute, David. Yeah, look, I, I, I agree. And a lot of these restrictions and, and even laws that have come about before the pandemic, it just shocks me the way that they come up with these things. And, you know, they say, oh, well, you know, we'll just shut, you know, they at the start they were talking about this hibernation, you know, we'll just hibernate businesses for a while and then bring them back, thaw them out again and they'll come back. It's It just demonstrates such a fundamental misunderstanding of how the private sector operates, you know, like they need to plan, they need certainty and, and certainly governments should provide a framework, but there's been sort of no certainty about anything. And, and the biggest thing that's, I don't think people have talked about it much. What's really going on when the government comes out with all these restrictions throughout the pandemic, what they're really doing is assuming risk management for the businesses. Like normally businesses are very good at managing their own risk, right? So every business, no one goes into business without risk and you try and identify those risks and mitigate them, right? So you've got, you know, financial risk, you've got um, worker safety risk, you've got um, you know, reputational risk, market risk, you've got all these different risks and, and a good a good businessman will, you know, go through with their team and try and identify all those risks and mitigate them. And because they're closest to their customers and closest to the business, they're in the best position to understand those risks. But then what's happened when the disease, when COVID's come along, is the, the government said, well, we're going to manage these risks for you from now on and we're going to do it in such a way that's going to just shut you down like they used they've got no choice but to use this sort of sledgehammer approach because they can't cater for every 
single individual situation. And of course, it looks crazy to the people on the ground because they say, well, you know, I can manage these risks. You know, people in restaurants was one, you know, restaurants have had to manage uh, disease risk you know, as part of their business ever, ever since, you know, yeah. ever since they started, right? Because yeah. they don't want to poison yeah. their customers. And so they're very good at managing hygiene controls and all this sort of stuff. And then all of a sudden they're just told, no, nah, you can't operate anymore. Or when you do operate, here's how you got to do it. And they look at these restrictions by the government and they're saying, this is crazy. This doesn't make sense in my business. And it makes it look Crazy, but you know it's it's really back back down to this sort of central planning idea. The government has these you know bureaucrats that have never run stuff in the private sector, and they're just saying, right, here's what we've got to do, and we'll just force everyone to do it, and you know hope it works. And yeah, it's 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 been terrible because a lot of these businesses have have been under restrictions, which in many cases I would say are unnecessary. Yeah, unless you're a brothel, and then you were. Uh... <laughs> then you were allowed to proceed as, as normal and, and one of the few businesses that literally involves a lot of human contact and touching. Um, I think that was the, the straw that broke the camel's back for a lot of people in Victoria. They're like, hang on a second, wait, how, how does that work? But where do you see the state of politics in Victoria today? I mean, how do you see it? COVID has obviously shown um, just how much power, you know, I think state and even local government to an extent having our everyday lives. I mean, most people's question is, you know, will we as a people um, ever, will we get that control back? You know, history shows, anyone who's read history books and, and studied a little bit of it, even if you, you know, haven't studied a lot of it, you know that usually when government takes control of our everyday lives, much like is happening today, it can take a long, long time and a lot of a lot of problems along the way to, to get that back. But, but do you see, you know, the people of Victoria somewhat gaining control of their own lives you know, soon, medium, long-term? And how do you see, you know, the state of politics in Victoria right now? I think like what I said before, like whenever there's an emergency, like like I mentioned, the war on terror, a lot of those restrictions went away, but then a lot of them hung around and they're still with us, you know, decades later. And I'm really concerned that the same sort of thing's going to happen with this pandemic. But one thing that's happened, uh, especially in Victoria, but I think globally to a degree is that politics has been totally shaken up. So I think like there's been a large number of people and I've noticed this with my own constituents and just in talking with, you know, average people, a large number of people have become engaged with politics who never really paid any attention to it. And, you know, if the government's working well, you shouldn't really need to pay much attention to it, right? They should just stay out of your life and and do things in the background. But because they're intruding in people's lives, a lot of people are asking questions and saying, well, hang on a minute, why, why are they doing this? And why are, they, why are they shutting me down like this? And who's doing this? And how do they have the power to do that? And a lot of people are asking questions. And I think it's led to this mass engagement of people who maybe don't really understand the political process very well, and they're learning about it. And I think that's a good thing. And I think the other thing that's happened is that uh, people are becoming more acutely aware of how important it is to guard their rights and liberties. And this is, this is the silver lining, I suppose, from my point of view, in that um, so many people have had their, their freedoms taken away that I think that in the future, they'll be far more careful in thinking about how government actions might 
limit their rights. And th- this is a good thing. I and mean, we, we've seen this, you know, with the explosion in, in membership in our party. We've had lots of people come to our party who have said, yeah, I wasn't really involved in politics, but I looked around and you guys were the ones that were, you know, sticking up for my rights and I want to make sure that we defend our rights. Um, I think in the short term, um, it's going to be hard to get a lot of those rights back. But I think ultimately the way that we manage these things in a democracy is, you know, the way that we peacefully transition these things and express our will is through elections. And I hope that, you know, in the in the next few elections, we've got a federal and a state election, that people will ask, you know, how is this person that's standing, you know, that's standing and wanting my vote, how are they going to defend my rights in the future? And I hope more people will ask that question and vote for the people that they believe are actually going to defend their rights. And that's how we'll get it back. Yeah, yeah, and I want to touch base on that a bit later in detail. Um, but I'm a prime example of of someone who's probably only really got involved politically in the last four or five years, um, kind of slowly, and now much more of what I've seen, you know, during the pandemic and, and things being taken away, and, and that comes from me being in a working class family and knowing that. You know, uh, if this happened when I was a child, my father wouldn't be able to work. You know, as a mechanic by trade, carburetor, fuel injection specialist, like no one's getting their car serviced when they're not driving their car, right? So we would have been in all sorts um, and that, that's why I'm passionate about it. But I wanted to just flow into, I guess, the point of patrol towards parts of the community who don't fully agree with with the government. Um, we're, we're seeing... We're seeing that a lot, um, and it's not just Victoria. It's it's state to state. We saw our old, old mate Premier up there in in, in Darwin, or um, not Premier, but he's, he's in charge of the territory up there in, in Northern Territory, um, basically calling people anti-vax if they didn't agree with the mandates. Um, Andrews has constantly, you know, made threats towards people who are not fully dosed um, with both doses of of, of the vaccine, and, and that will potentially flow into into the boosters. Um, you can beat your house on that. You know, Andrews has made threats to people watching sunsets out in the Mornington Peninsula. You know, don't go and watch a sunset. That's that's very, very bad for the community. Um, then we flow on to, you know, the closing of, of, of kids' playgrounds and kind of almost uh, there was a pointed labelling towards mums and dads at playgrounds like you guys were flouting the rules and having picnics while your children were playing, so we're going to ban it all. Um, when I know, you know, that might have been a minority, but all the parents I spoke to, they're one outlet um, for anyone with young kids under five, myself included, the one outlet was when you were in, you know, lockdown twenty four hours a day. Your one outlet was that one hour of park time where you could get the kids out on a playground. When that was taken away, people were, you know, parents. The depression levels went up. It was it was a really sad, sad time when that happened. Um, then you look at you know brothels being open, liquor stores being open. Um, so much so as, as government funded building projects were were pretty much going unencumbered for the most part um, compared to private. You know, but I want to touch on how you feel about about the labelling of portions of our community. I mean, I, I believe you're you're, you're a pro choice um, guy, and 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 you, you probably would emphasise that if you know it's someone's decision on what they want to do, um, whether it be following the restrictions completely, the mandates, or this or that, um, that should be a, a choice for for the individual. How do you see all that, and do you agree with? I mean the wording used by these politicians because it is, it's very, very pointed and it's, it's literally, and we're seeing it now with the boosters. Like, it's like, oh, you're, you're no longer fully vaccinated unless you've had that third booster. And now there's another subgroup and we're just continuing to have people in different, different uh, types of groups that all are, 
are supposed to not like each other based on these these premier press conferences. Look, it's been something that I've been upset about right since the start. You know, they, I called it the demonization of dissents. Basically, anyone that uh, disagreed with any of the government actions. They've been, you know, labelling them as, as you know, uh, morally reprehensible, uh, conspiracy theorists, uh, insane. Uh, right-wing bigots, fake tradies. Yeah, right-wing extremists <laughs> has been a more recent thing, or Nazis. Yeah. Um, and it's it's happened all along. And the, the reason is, I think, is that because they've used mandates for everything, they need to um, justify that use of force. And I think the first thing that that I noticed where groups were getting really badly treated was actually quite early on with the mask mandates. Now, when they first came out with mask mandates, I included, didn't really think about it that much. I just thought, well, you know, they're asking people to wear a mask and maybe it's not that big a deal and, um, you know, maybe I shouldn't get too excited about it. But... Um, what I noticed was people started contacting my office with these stories and um, many people aren't aware that there's uh, mask exemptions, right? There's people who just can't wear masks. And when you talk to these people, what you find out is that there's, there's very legitimate reasons why these people can't wear masks. So some people um, that contacted my office, they have uh, teenage children who are um, on the autism spectrum disorder, right? And they have trouble, you know, keeping something on their face. Um, other people have uh, lung conditions, right? So they, they can't wear a mask because they've got a lung condition. But more disturbingly, there are some people who are victims of trauma, including uh, victims of sexual assault, and wearing this close-fitting thing on their face triggers their, their, um, their condition. And these people were contacting my office and saying... I'm scared to go out in public because yeah. people abuse me. Um, people yell at me. They don't let me into the shops. I say I've got an exemption and they ignore me. And this, and some of these people were having a terrible, terrible time. And I was just like, this is caused by the government because they've demonised everyone who doesn't wear a mask as sort of, you know, a crazy anti-mask or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And- it's because they've resorted to mandates. Now, if if they had have just recommended and educated people, which is what lots of countries did, by the way, and I've been going on about Japan because I've, you know, watched Japan very closely because I used to live there. They never mandated anything. And they just had a big education campaign. Here's how masks work and, and here's where they're useful and here's where they're not so useful. And they said, you know, if you see someone not wearing a mask, you know, be kind to them because, you know, there's probably got some personal reason that's none of your business, right? And I was thinking, why didn't we do that? And I remember the day that the Premier got up and announced that they were mandating masks, I remember this clearly, he said something along the lines, I'm really pleased to see that even though the masks aren't mandated, I'm paraphrasing here, of course, but he basically said, even though they're not mandated yet, I'm really pleased to see that I reckon about 80% of the people that I saw on the way in here are wearing masks. So he basically admitted that, you know, people were voluntarily complying already mm -hmm. and maybe if they had have had, you know, an education campaign, they could have got that higher than 80%. But they just went straight into, into mandates. And even worse, before that, they'd been 
recommending people not to wear masks. And I actually asked about this in Parliament because I was watching other countries who were recommending masks and we were saying, no, 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 you shouldn't wear masks in Australia. And I actually asked that in Parliament. I said, you know, why aren't we recommending masks? Now, I wasn't thinking about mandates at all. I I thought, um, you know, if they're useful, maybe the government should recommend them. Certainly they shouldn't be recommending people not wear them. And then they went straight from recommending people don't wear them into mandating them, which I just thought was crazy. And from a public health messaging point of view, it makes people really lose uh, faith in what they're saying, I think. And then, of course, that's escalated the whole way along. Um, you know, when they had the lockdowns, um, they wouldn't let people exercise their right to peaceful assembly. But, of course, they went ahead and did it anyway. That resulted in absolute chaos, you know, people getting shot shot at by the government on the streets. And then later on, we had the, the vaccines. And, of course, when the vaccines first were available, I, I had no problem with that. Like, I, I had... I thought it was great that, you know, new technologies and medicines had been developed and the government was making them available. We had no problem with that. But, of course, they started mandating them and then they said, right, if you don't do it, you're going to lose your job. And then, you know, if you don't do it, you're not going to be able to take part in society. And then, of course, in order for them to justify that, they need to demonise any opposition. And, again, it's been you've had this group of people who've been just treated horribly, horribly by the government. And, um, you know, what what did they expect, right? They, they basically tell, you know, 5 to 10% of the population that, you know, you're, you're going to be unemployed and removed from society. I mean, what did they expect them to do? Of course they're going to be upset about it. Of course they're going to push back, which is exactly what happened. And this is, this is the very government that, you know, <laughs> throughout their previous election campaigns were all about, we've got to protect minorities and... You know, we, we, we minority rights. We need to listen to our, our voiceless. And now, all of a sudden, no more. We're throwing them aside. But just just so around the mask mandate, you know, I've followed this closely, and I've always had these um, conversations with people. One thing is the reason why they went from saying don't wear a mask to mask because they use the label of the science is changing, and you know, we learned a new thing, and the health advice has presented different findings. That's why I've changed it. But David, let's be honest. Around these face masks. Um, I'm not sure how much you pay attention to it, but the more and more people I see with face... At first, it was face coverings, by the way. It wasn't face masks in Victoria. You could, you could basically wear a, a hoodie over your face or you could wear a, a knitted pair of gloves with a string. You could wear underwear. Um, then they actually mandated it to, to a proper face covering. But what I've noticed with this is, per medical advice, nobody's treating this the right way. It's, it's, it's completely to conform and be part of the in club of I'm, I'm doing something for my community. When you factor in, people are taking these things off and putting them on 20, 30, 40, 50 times a day. A lot of people have them hanging around. I've noticed their, their rear view mirror on their car or in their glove box. I know I, I've, I've had one in my pocket or a bag, you know, rubbing, rubbing amongst other kind of dirty stuff and who, who knows what else. The, the, the advice around you know, and I'm not, I'm not a medical professional, but I've read enough to know the advice around masks is as soon as you take them off your face, you're supposed to dispose of them, right? And you're supposed to wash your hands. And then if you're going to put it on again, you put on a fresh one out of a packet. So we've now gone from that to anything on your face, you're conforming, good job, pat on the back. Is it really providing protection? And I think that's a valid question that I have and, and a lot of people have because you just see people even on planes and they're fidgeting, they're, they're, they're touching things in the aisle, they're touching their face, mask off, mask on, mask off, mask on. And it's like, I think it's it's strictly to conform and, and to, to be, you know, I'm for the cause, I'm, I'm with the government. Um, if it really was about the actual 
pure health advice, it would be like, hey, if you take your mask off, put a new one on after you've taken it off, that'd be the 100% correct advice. But I think it's the face coverings, in my opinion, have become strictly political. Oh, look, I think you you, you raise a great point. And this, this is down to the fact that it's mandated, right? So the, the whole um, motivation for masks in Victoria is around, really, is around compliance, right? So, you know, you don't want to get a fine or you don't want people to stare at you, so you wear it around compliance. But actually, effective mask use, you know, of course, masks can be used to uh, lower the probability of the spread of disease, but using a mask correctly is is not a simple thing, right? You, people need to be trained how to do it properly. That They train doctors how to do it properly. And as you say, if you're fiddling with it and stuff like that, then it's not... Um, can be not very effective. And I think this is one of the problems with mandating uh, these health directions rather than providing uh, good science-backed education is that the focus is on uh, compliance rather than around effective effective management of or effective mask usage and effective prevention of transmission of disease. And again, I go back to um, what Japan did. They they didn't mandate any masks or they didn't have lockdowns or anything like that. But what they did do is they had a really good public education campaign around, you know, how masks work, how do how, what t- different types of masks are there, how they might protect you. And th- they said early, lo- early on, you know, that the your typical sort of, you know, surgical mask, they're not 100% effective. They're primarily... The main thing that they do is deflect uh, vapor particles instead of coming straight out of your mouth. They deflect them out the sides, which means that when you're talking to someone, those particles aren't going directly towards the person that you're talking to, which helps lower the um, spread of disease. But they also said that you know those types of masks uh, can't be expected to protect the person wearing them, therefore protecting other people in case you happen to be sick and not aware that you're sick. Um, if you need to protect yourself with a mask, then you need a special, you know, N95 mask or, or something like that. And they're much more uh, difficult to wear properly and they're more expensive. But, um, you know, I thought that their campaign was really good. And they said, you know, wearing them outside is probably not going to help much. But if you're in a close environment with a lot of people, like on the train or, or in an office or something, um, they might be of some use. Um, but another thing that they focused on early on, which we're only just getting around to now, was around ventilation. Um, they had uh, educational videos about, um, you know, how to manage ventilation in offices because um, they were saying that, you know, rooms that have stale air, um, the disease can, you know, float around in the air for some time. And if you, if you put – they just had simple ideas like uh, leave the doors open when you're having a meeting – and uh, go to the supermarket and buy, you know, one of those cheap fans and put in the doorway to keep the air moving, open the windows if you can, this sort of thing to improve ventilation in, in workspaces. And, um, you know, I think that sort of thing helps as well. Um, but we're only just talking about ventilation now, which seems crazy that it took us so long to get around to that. Especially in Melbourne. We're spending millions and millions and millions of dollars on... Uh, special deep cleaning on trains and things like this. Those, you know, sending people around spraying disinfectant on things and wiping things. Especially outside. As it turns out. Outside. Turns out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And even on like, even outside, like on, on tram stops and stuff, which seems crazy because it's exposed to ultraviolet light, which kills just about everything. And as it turns out, you know, 
that uh, vector for d- disease transmission hasn't been particularly significant. It's been all around, you know, particles in the air. So, uh, you know, how much money did we waste on that? I, I note that finally they've woken up to that and they've required, they used to require businesses that were exposure sites to go through deep cleaning and all that sort of stuff. And they don't, they haven't, they don't require that anymore under the new directions, I think, because they've sort of woken up that it's not particularly effective probably. Yeah, no, no doubt. And just factoring that into Melbourne, it's, you know, Melbourne in the winter, where is everybody? They're inside, they're around a heater, ventilation is probably not great because they don't want to open a window or a door. Um, and it's, 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 you know, kind of not surprising to see the spikes that were in colder climates compared to, you know, further up north. I mean, Sydney's had a fair bit as well, but, and then, you know, obviously in bigger cities, it's, it's definitely gone that way. But um, another thing that's always bothered me, David, is, 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 our premiers and prime minister and all around the world, politicians, senators, they, they get up and they, they talk about, you know, um, about case numbers and ICU and, you know, there hasn't been much around giving just basic advice on what to do if you're in a low risk age group, um, let's say you're my age, you're 35 years old, you're very low risk, you're in decent shape. What do you do uh, when you, when you, if you happen to contract coronavirus? Now, the reason why I bring this up is because, you know, we've been big on, on on shutting down and locking down and putting restrictions, kilometer limits, curfews, all to not back up our health system. That was the, 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 the strategy from our government that we heard all the time. We're doing this to protect the health system. We don't want to overrun it, right? And then most people watch a premier press conf- conference or a prime minister and, and what do they get? They get they get fear porn to death of like, you know, it's going to come find you. You better blah, 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 blah. So wouldn't it be a decent thing to do to say, hey, if, if you're in a low risk category and you, you catch this thing, you, you're, you know, unless you've got crazy symptoms where you, you think you need to maybe see a doctor or go to a hospital, if you don't have any severe symptoms where you where you basically can't walk and you're in all sorts, this is what you need to do. You know, you need to stay very well hydrated. Um, you can take some some codrol if you need to, whatever it is. These are the basics. Um, try to get some, you know, natural sunlight if you can, get out and about, stay off your feet the first two or three, whatever, whatever it is. We, we never received any of that. It was always strictly, you know, go to hospital or go and get your vaccine. But what if you've actually contracted it? And, and that's, I've had a huge issue with that because it contradicts the exact messaging around, let's not back up our health system. Well, you've just fear pawned a perfectly healthy male or female or teenager, someone who's very, very strong in that part of their life, they're healthy. You fear pawned them, they've, they've tested positive on a test. They don't feel that bad or maybe a little sniffle and they run to the hospital, what are they doing? They're backing up the health system. <laughs> so well, well, why is that? I mean, people say, oh, well, politicians can't give health advice and there's ramifications if they say do this and something happens, but why can't they just give, you know, just some basic advice around, you know, basic dietary stuff, making sure you're drinking a lot of water, stay off your feet the first couple of days. Why can't they do that? I think on the coronavirus website, they do have some advice, you know, what what are you, what are you meant to do if you're, if you're positive, you know, you're not meant to go out and about uh, outside of your home, which, you know, is fair enough because you don't want to infect people. But um, the, the whole fear porn thing has been around, you know, scaring the wits out of everyone. And, you know, I think they said, oh, this virus doesn't discriminate. Well, it bloody well does. It does. Discriminate. It, does. <laughs> it bloody well does discriminate. <laughs> yeah. um, and it's, it seems very clear that, you know, I think we understand very well now the groups that are at risk and and that aren't. And it's, you know, people who are older, people who are immunocompromised, people who are obese, um, people who have 
um, other diseases like, you know, diabetes and things like this. And these people should absolutely um, take precautions, whatever they, you know, whatever precautions they can, and they should, you know, be very careful. But then they're saying, you know, with young, healthy people, they even went to the point of, you know, mandating vaccines for teenage kids, which I was outraged about. Thankfully, they've they've stopped that now. But um, I was outraged about it because they're taking, effectively, they're overriding uh, consent for personal medical decisions. So these kids that are probably at very, very low risk of getting serious harm from the virus are effectively just seen as, you know, transmission vectors within the community. And they've treated these kids like this the whole way along. Like, that's why they shut down schools, right? Like, they didn't shut down schools because they thought the kids were at risk of dying from coronavirus. Yeah, it's bringing it home. Mm. Yeah, well, they shut down the schools to lower the um, risk of movement in the community. And that's not my speculation. Like, I was on the uh, – I'm, I'm still on the Public Accounts and Estimates Committee, and we, I asked the health minister, Molino himself, I said, you know, what's the rationale behind shutting down schools? And, you know, they said, well, we want to uh, lower movement within the community, and that, that does it. So they've effectively sacrificed the welfare of these children to um, stop the spread throughout the community. And, you know, I don't think that they've really thought about the harms that they're causing with these actions. And a lot of these harms are absolutely catastrophic. And, you know, this comes down to the proportionality of the response that they've taken. Everything's been focused around, you know, case numbers, hospital admissions, deaths and um, ICU admissions from the disease itself. But there hasn't been a lot of attention paid to, well, what's the harms that have been caused by these actions that the government has taken? And I feel in lots of cases, um, the actions have been unnecessary um, and they've actually increased harm in lots of cases. I think one case where they've definitely increased harm is around um, effectively stopping the right to peaceful assembly with protests. So, you know, they were going around and arresting people who were trying to uh, organise a protest. They were arresting them for incitement, charging them with incitement. But people, of course, protested anyway. And what you ended up with, instead of an orderly protest, which could have been facilitated by the police and they could have given, the health department could have given advice on, okay, well, we don't recommend that you have a protest, but if you're going to have a protest, here's some ways that you can make it safer, right? That's what they could have done. Um they didn't do that, except in the case of that Black Lives Matter protest last year. And what ended up happening is people just took to the streets in a chaotic fashion. And, you know, we all saw the results of that. And then eventually the government said, right, we've got to stop this. And then they ended up resorting eventually to opening fire on people on the streets, which, you know, I, I, I just can't for the life of me see how anyone thought that that was going to be... The, the least harm situation, um, you know, they could have minimised the harm from protests by facilitating it and they never did that. Not at all. And, and just touching on, on, the, on the kids and children, I mean, I'm a very big advocate of trying to show people what this is doing to kids. It's been noted, it was a study in the US, um, people can, can look it up online if they want to, that um, children born during the pandemic have lower IQs, significantly lower IQs, not not just small, verbal, motor, and overall cognitive performance compared with you know pre 
the pandemic, right? So born into it and even going into school, so maybe four or five going into school. And there's a lot of factors at play. Um, there's, there's numerous factors, but it's, it's noted. And this is one of the first times in history we're protecting, you know, you want to protect the elderly to an extent, but we're protecting them um, to the detriment of children. And, and that, that's a no-no. Um, I've, I've been vocal and my, my very grandmother, who's now a great-grandmother, has said she, she would, you know, as harsh as this sounds, she'd rather, rather go peacefully and let her grand, grandchildren and great-grandchildren make sure that they have the best possible upbringing and education and, and life and, and no stress and all that. If she has to go for it, she would, she would sacrifice herself. And I'm in the same boat. You know, once I'm older and I've lived my life and I'm 60, 70, I would sacrifice myself for a five-year-old great-grandchild. And I think this is one of the first times in, 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 in history that, that we've, we've gone the opposite, you know, and I'm not, I'm not advocating kill grandma for all the people out there that are like, oh, you just want to kill granny. No, of course, I want to protect the elderly as much as we can, but not to the detriment of children and their education and their social well-being. I mean, even having children in masks as young as five or six years old, there were studies out of the US and parents handed in the masks to get tested at the end of a school week. There was feces on some of these children's masks, David, feces. This is noted because they drop them in the bathroom, pick them up. They're kids. You know, my kids picking their nose, picking their ear, picking up dirt, you know, who knows what else they're touching. You're expecting them to conform and and be part of that in group. And I'm, I'm really, really saddened that we've gone the route of, you know, these kids are, you know, we can put their education, their social well-being aside, um, blah, blah, blah. And then on top of that, like you said, oh, look at those little virus-carrying credins walking around. That's how some, some people look at children. And you're just like, where have we come as a society that that is even thought of, you know, that they're children. Like they're, they're the beacon. They're, they're our existing existence moving forward. Um, they're our loins. They're, and, and I really, really, really have no time for those kind of people. And a lot of them, a lot of, a lot of the elderly these days, you know, not, not all, but there is a fair bit of elderly that, that just feel like that they're, you know, in their position and then they, their, their life is more important than a child. And I, I strongly disagree with that. Yeah, I mean, well, you, you, we said before about adults having trouble wearing masks properly. I mean, you know, kids have got no hope, have they? <laughs> it's like, you know, and that's just one one example. But, like, the harms that have been done to kids. Now, we talk about, you know, you, you talked about, you know, killing grandma and stuff, right? Um, what we're really talking about with any of these things is we're trying to, you know, stop people taking away part of their life, right? So, you know, we don't we don't want people to die prematurely, but also we don't want people to have part of their life taken away. And what we've really done with kids over the last two years is we've taken away part of their life. Now, they haven't died, but they've been locked inside. They've had their educational, their physical and their social development um, held back by by this. Now, some kids have dealt with it pretty well, but a lot of them haven't. And we don't really know the long-term effects of this. And we're not going to know for a long time, I don't think. But I think that this entire generation of children is going to have problems that are going to persist over the long term. A lot of kids, um, both, you know, in groups that I've seen, you know, within my own social circles, but also constituents that have contacted me, some of the effects on kids have been absolutely catastrophic. Um, some of them have dropped out of school. Um, some of them have, uh, you know, failed subjects. Some of them be- become very obese, uh, which, you know, ironically is one of the major comorbidity risk factors for COVID in the first place. 
um, you know, that yeah, I was shocked. Like during during um, in between lockdowns last year, I took my my kids to the pool. You know, my, I got three boys and. They love going swimming and stuff, and so we went to the pool. I was shocked when I went to the pool. There was so many overweight kids, and I, I'd never seen so many overweight kids because, you know, kids normally when they're at school, they're running around at lunchtime, they're, they're playing footy and basketball with their mates, they're doing their sports after school, they're going to their mates' places on the weekend and running around and riding their bikes and doing all that stuff. They didn't do any of that for like two years and of course, it has a detrimental effect on their physical well-being. Um, primarily, you know, gaining weight. And a lot of kids, are, they've, they've got to have a big focus now on trying to get kids back into shape because there's still a lot of kids that are overweight. Which, you know, at a young age like that, is just really shocking. Yeah, it's become routine. That's the thing because we've just been and, and for adults, it's been work from home during the day, watch my Netflix, get my Uber Eats, and, and you get in that routine. And we're routine based people, we're creatures of habit. But um, I mean, I, I agree. I think it's we don't know the long. We, I think we can both guess the long term effects of what's going to happen, both from physical health, you know, mental health. But I've got the opposite. Like I know someone who's pretty close to me, um, family wise, that um, you know, eight, seven, eight years old. Whenever, whenever the, the new premier press conference would announce a lockdown, he wouldn't eat. <laughs> would not eat. Um, they, they they couldn't. They could not get him to eat. He'd, he'd curl up basically. And they'd find him in the corner of his room, just playing quietly, but but would not eat. They'd call him to eat. Would refuse to eat. Just would end up fasting subconsciously. Um, and that's why my wife and I we, we made a, a really big effort of not talking about. Um, any of this stuff kind of in front of the kids, uh, period. They, they, they don't know what's going on in the world. And, and I'm, I'm blessed enough that they, they start school next year. So they, they haven't been around school to notice what the hell's going on with me. Why is my teacher wearing a mask? Why is this? Why is that? They're three and five. So we're, we've really tried to not not have that on around them. And when they ask questions about it, we just kind of, you know, we don't get too much into it. We just say, oh, you know, it's just, it's just something going on. That's because we don't want them to, to like you said, be born and raised in this but it's a huge concern and, and and you know children should be out and about causing trouble climbing trees you know playing pranks on each other riding their bikes and and you know for, for a number of uh, days and months and you know two years in victoria's case that they were allowed out one hour a day you know and and, and a lot of people were following that. Now, you know, good people break, break bad laws. Um, and that's one of the cases. If, if my child wanted to go out for two or three hours, by all means, we're going out. And, and if there's one thing you can social distance with, it's going for a walk around the block. And, and it was mind-boggling that that actually put those those mandates in. But moving on, moving on from that real quick, we'll get back to the mandates in a second. With Victorian politics, at least, Dan's social media team, David, how many... How many uh, Abusive messages. How many troll tweets have you received from from that ilk? Look, it's hard. Like a bit, uh, not as much as uh, Liberal Party MPs, but um, it's hard to know. Like how much of it is coming from the government itself, and how much of it is from their supporter base. Like it, it's really difficult. It's very, very opaque. I think is the is the problem. Um, they tend to mostly leave me alone until I do something that is sensitive, right? And then and then that, that might get some sort of cut through and then they try and, you know, bury you. But they're usually not particularly successful at it. So, yeah, I don't tend to cop too much of it. Uh, they tend to focus on Liberal Party MPs and, 
and they focus on, you know, influencers like yourself and other people, they try and, um, you know, demonise them because they don't want them getting any sort of traction. But it's, it's hard to know, you know, how much of it is, you know, bots, how much of it is controlled by the government, how much of it is just, you know, Labor Party fanatics. Um, I don't know, like, really hard to know. I know that they spend a lot of money on social media. That's my point. <laughs> the, yeah, the, they spend a lot of money on it. But here's the thing, like, it's, it's, it's quite weird what they do. So if you look at Labor Party MP accounts, they almost say nothing, right? They, they just say, you know, I went to something and cut a ribbon or here's a picture of my dog or something. <laughs> barbecue. <they're> basically, <laughs> sorry? Or a barbecue. Yeah, or a barbecue. Yeah, barbecue. They basically say nothing. Everything's focused around the leader, around Daniel Andrews. All the other MPs have tiny followings. I'm guessing they must have been muzzled. Um, and they basically say hardly anything. And it's quite, quite... Weird. So, you know, MPs who actually say something, so I, I cause trouble all the time, tend to get quite a large social media following. And I think now, like, I, I'd have to double check, but I think I'm pretty much, you know, got the third highest following in state parliament on Twitter and Facebook now, behind just behind Daniel Andrews and Matthew Guy. So, you know, that, I think that's maybe another reason they leave me alone is because I do have a large following and they might actually hit back and they look stupid, I suppose, But because um, I do tend to hit back if they have a go at me, but they don't tend to do it that much. But I think it is very sort of evil and manipulative how they have all these anonymous accounts that basically are just government propaganda and demonising our population. Yeah, with labels and, and abuse and labels, yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They just abuse people and uh, and you know call them right wing extremists or conspiracy theorists and all this sort of stuff. And you know, like every sort of group, you don't have to look far to find one or two sort of fringe elements in every group. And of course, their basic tactic is to focus on a few fringe people and then try and smear everyone who opposes the government as being the same as that. Which of course is nonsense, but. Interestingly, it's the same tactic that, you know, racists and other bigots use. It's the same, same thing, right? You, you pick someone from a group who, who is doing something dodgy and then you try and make out that the entire group is like that. But, of course, real life isn't like that. So, yeah, I, I don't know, like, how much, how much effect is it really having? I don't know. Like, are they, are they just sort of, you know, amplifying stuff within their own bubble? It seems to yeah. me that it's not really permeating outside their bubble that much. There seems to be a very large and growing group outside of that bubble that just is sort of laughing at them now. So Yeah, it is. It is. It is. It is, is it an echo chamber, no doubt. But, I mean, my point around that was what you just mentioned earlier was it's our taxes. <laughs> you know, that, that, that's what really shits me, shits me about it is we're, we're paying. We're it's paying quite opaque, though. To be like, trolled, We don't yeah. know. Like, yeah, we know that they're spending money on social media, but, you know, these anonymous accounts that are attacking people, are they taxpayer funded? I mean, I don't know. I don't know who's behind them. I think it's a mix. I think it definitely is a mix because I mean I've been I've been they've attempted to cancel me numerous times and you look at some of the accounts, they're all the same. They're all the same. They've got a random photo that's not them. They don't have very many um many posts and they're, you know, 
as soon as there's a hashtag that needs pushing to get trending, all of a sudden that account's pumping out numerous posts with that hashtag. So, and then, then on top of that, you've got people that are genuine all in for that political party, which is fine. But I think there is a there is definitely you know a bunch of uh, labor staffers that um, down the bottom trying to work their way up to be lifelong politicians that have about you know 30 or 40 or 50 accounts that can easily get something trending um, I've no doubt in my mind they're doing that it's just disappointing that that it, it is done without taxes thankfully Australia's you know there's not a huge population on social media compared to some other countries. I know I think we're at 20 or 30% are, are on Twitter or Facebook and, and most people don't use at least Facebook for, or Instagram for that matter, for political purposes. They use it to share photos with family and friends. So thankfully we're in that boat, but um, it definitely, I, I agree with you, it is not real life. It seems like it's much bigger than it is, but I just thought it'd be an interesting one considering the taxes we pay. Uh, essentially at times go to, go to troll the very own constituents that are paying those taxes. The state of origin with border closures, what are your thoughts around that? I mean, um, uh, it, it just seems like every every other week it's it's calmed down a little bit now, but there's still obviously mandates to get into states. But have you just have you just cringed watching? You know, it's been it's been like following a sporting team over the, t- the last two years, and, and and so much so that you have people now, you know, in WA saying we don't want you Easterners coming here, and look look at us now. Now we've got lockdowns, and then Queensland doing the same thing, and then Victoria blaming Sydney. It's just like it just a it's just a carousel of blame, but it's it's become so divided that it that it is a sporting team right now. Yeah, I mean the the federation's never been in. In such a worse state, I, d- I don't think it's. Um, I some of the things like you know our our constitution, the the Commonwealth Constitution is it doesn't have a lot of protections in there. But one protection that it did have that I thought was always sacred was the ability to cross borders. And um, as it's turned out, that isn't the case. You know, I always thought that we had freedom of movement between states. Uh, and apparently not. Um, and there's been high court challenges to that, and they've said, no, well, it's proportionate. And so we've ended up with these, you know, almost hermit kingdoms and, and the terrible uh, consequences of doing that. You know, you've got interruptions to trade, but worse than that, you've got families that are separated. Um, well, that's the thing, David. We, we, we have... We have the- we have the restrictions. Sorry to cut you off. We have the restrictions for traveling interstate. They've, they've actually kept residents away from their homes. So Queensland had kept residents six, seven, eight, nine months. They couldn't get into hotel quarantine because it was so backed up. But at one point, um, it was reportedly there was five thousand people waiting to get into hotel quarantine. They were taking five hundred at a time. So do the math. That's five hundred lots of people. You divide that up by five thousand. You're waiting six, seven, you know, eight months sometimes if it's the full fourteen days. And you're just like, they're paying rates, they're paying taxes in that state for their home. They have to have someone check on their home. Have they been robbed? And they're either camping on the border or they're stuck somewhere. A friend of mine got stuck in Victoria that was from Queensland, had to stay with a mate because he'd, he'd um, his lease was up in Victoria to go back home to Queensland. And then they shut him out. In six months, he's living in you know, one bedroom with a wife and two kids um, at a friend's place. You know, And if you didn't have that friend, you'd be on the street. But it's just, how that's allowed is just mind boggling. Oh, look, it's outrageous. Like, you know, under under international definitions, these are internally displaced people. They're refugees. Like, and we've said this a number of times, like it's, it's, it's criminal what they've done with stopping people returning to their own homes. Like it's, it's a fundamental human right to be able to return to your own home. And even, even worse than that is people that have been stuck overseas. Like we've got Australian citizens who've been stuck in other countries and can't return home. Like, um, 
this is just outrageous what we've done and other countries haven't done this. Like it's, um, this is something that other countries have looked at us and said, really, you're, you're stopping your own citizens returning home? Like this is just a horrible thing that we've done to people and, and the disruption to their lives, I really question uh, the necessity of it. And, you know, like these people who, like the, the friend that you was talking about in Victoria, it seems pretty reasonable to me that you could drive to Queensland, go to your home, stay in your home, you know, quarantine in your home. Like it doesn't seem like that's a high risk activity, but they're just so paranoid about anyone crossing the borders that they just said no. And um, yeah, it's caused this horrible disruption to their lives. Even worse is when, you know, you've got a family member, you know, you want to go to a funeral or something oh. like this and you can't go. Like, it's just horrific um, what's happened to people due to these restrictions. Yeah, hospital on their deathbed, you can't visit them. Um, we yeah. know people have been locked out of state. I mean, there was a time, I believe it was Victoria, that were kind of trying to tell people not to drive through Sydney neither. Um, there was conversations around that early on, I think last year. It might have been Victoria saying, oh, don't drive through Sydney because there's cases there. And it's like, are you kidding me? If they're driving home from Queensland, they can't go they can't go via the Pacific Highway. They have to go all the way around in case it goes through their air conditioning vents. That was always a funny one. You came to notoriety, notoriety around the, the, the mandates. Um, you took a big stance. I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, you refused to show your papers to enter Parliament, therefore could not enter. Is that, is that right? Yeah, yeah. So, um, well, that wasn't the first big stance I'd taken, but um, the, the so I, I thought that I, I disagreed with the mandates for a number of reasons, but primarily because it undermines consent. And I think that um, undermining consent of medical procedures is a really, really dangerous path for a society to travel down. You know, we've seen historically what happens when um, governments force medical procedures onto people. And my thought always was that um, if you're getting told, you know, do what, do what, do take this medical procedure or lose your job, then I think that fundamentally undermines consent. And then when they tried to bring it in for members of parliament, because they couldn't do it through uh, mandates because members of parliament have parliamentary privilege, which most people think that's just, you know, protection for def from defamation from what you say in parliament. But also it means that you're not allowed to be impeded in your parliamentary business. And they got legal advice and they couldn't actually stop members of parliament travelling around and doing stuff, even with the mandates. And so what they did is they passed a motion in parliament so parliament can make rules for itself and so they made a rule that if you don't show your vaccination status, then you wouldn't be able to enter parliament. And I thought that this was crazy because you're effectively removing democratic representation from people based on medical procedures dictated by the government. Um, I had been vaccinated. I'd publicly stated that I'd been vaccinated back in August. Um, but I didn't think that that should be a requirement for me to be a democratically elected representative. And so I refused to hand in my papers along with uh, Tim Quilty and Catherine Cumming. She didn't hand in hers either. And so we ended up getting suspended from Parliament for that, which... You know, considering all of the all of the stuff around IBAC and all of this other dodgy stuff, the people that actually get suspended from Parliament are the ones that <laughs> are defending human rights. Like, I mean, I was just totally outraged at the time. Um, we we tried to be sensible and compromise. We said, "Look, I'll agree to taking uh, rapid antigen tests, 
um, before I come into Parliament. I'll agree to that. Um, but they wouldn't have it. I think the reason that they didn't want to agree to that is because they didn't let workers do that either. And even though having a rapid antigen test before you go to work is a very sensible thing to, you know, if you're worried about COVID entering the workplace, that's a sensible way of trying to mitigate that risk. But if they had have let us do it, then they would have had to let workers do it and then everyone would call into question, well, was the mandate actually legal because there was, you know, other less restrictive means of, of managing it, like through rapid antigen tests, um, and then, you know, the lawyers might get involved. So they didn't allow us to do that. So we ended up having Parliament in exile at a nightclub, which was fun, actually. So, yeah, we still participated remotely, but the one thing that we couldn't do was vote. I was going to ask you, yeah, you, you, you lost your ability to vote, right? Yeah, so we, we could take part in debates and all that sort of stuff, but the constitution in Victoria basically, it's complicated, but basically it boils down to if you're not in the parliamentary precinct and in the chamber, your vote can't be counted. So, um, yeah, you can't vote, basically. And um, so we did that for a sitting week of parliament, but then... The sitting week after that, they were going to bring in that pandemic legislation. So we had to make a decision on, you know, are we going to, you know, are we going to continue being in exile or are we going to hand in our papers and come back? And we we made the decision. Look, we've made our point. Um, we, we've we've uh, made our point that we got suspended, but we said we have to go back into parliament to fight against this pandemic legislation. So um, we handed in our papers and came back. Mm. And you and you were as part of that pandemic bill. You protested. Was that was that part of your kind of all night protest outside in the freezing cold in, in Melbourne? There was that part of the. That no, was a- that was something different. That was something different. So um, back in winter, when they closed the playgrounds. Oh, that's um, right. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, I was totally outraged by that because I, I felt like. Um, you know, I knew just from my own family, but, you know, talking to constituents and stuff, this was the one thing that families had to, you know, keep their kids sane, get out of the house and go to the playground and let the kids go on the slide. And, yeah, some of the parents were talking to each other and having a coffee, big deal. Um, And when they closed the playgrounds, I was just like, these guys are nuts. Like, these guys are crazy. And I was... I said, we've got to do something. Protest was banned at the time. But um, Tim and I said, well, we've got this parliamentary privilege. They can't stop us conducting parliamentary business within the parliamentary precinct. So we sat out the front of parliament with signs that my kids made, one of my boys made, um, saying open the parks. And we sat out there. Um, Our plan was we were going to sit out there for days originally, but... By the time curfew came, the cops were pretty good, by the way. They they had a lot of discussion with their seniors and stuff, and I think they wanted to arrest us, but they realised that they couldn't. <laughs> um, Shocker. Yeah. But then lots of members of the public started coming up and people were delivering us food and stuff, and, you know, that was really nice and everything. But, um, you know, there was a bit of a crowd forming, and when it got close to curfew, I was really worried that they were going to start cracking down and arresting people and stuff like that. And um, so we ended up pulling the pin because I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to see people get arrested or hurt. So um, we said, all right, we've made our point now, and um, we put, we packed up before curfew because I didn't want to end up with, you know, people getting dragged away by the police and stuff. So I spoke to the police and said, look, we're going to pack it up. 
um, we're going to tell people to go and we don't want to see anyone get arrested and that, that was cool. So no one got arrested or anything. So that was good. Moving on to voting independence. So a, a lot of people I've spoken to have questions around this. Um, some people have one mindset. The other mindset is what I'll explain now. But a lot of people are saying never Labor or Liberal again on both sides of the coin um, with what Labor's done, at least in Victoria. They've said, absolutely not, I'm not voting for them, but I can't also vote for, for the Liberals. Um, I don't like the messaging that they've had. They haven't really been too contra what Labor's done. They have to an extent, but not, not enough for me, not enough for my liking, meaning, you know, they're, they're looking at other parties. Others I've spoke to have said that they will vote anyone in so Labor doesn't win, meaning that even if they don't like the Liberals, um, and this is what I feel like politics has become to an extent, I hate the Liberals less than I hate Labor. <laughs> Not that I like the Liberals, I hate the Liberals less. Oh, I hate this party. I, I'd, I'd hate to have to vote for them, but I will because I hate that one more. So I guess my, my question is, I think we need, to, we need to not dumb it down, but we need it. There's a lot of people, as you mentioned earlier, I want to circle back to that. There's a lot of people that have not been engaged in politics ever in their life. I mean, so much so that people would go to the ballot box and draw, you know, almost draw inappropriate pictures on their voting ballot because they didn't want to be there because, you know, for those that don't know, they're listening outside of Australia, you get fined in Australia if you don't vote. So a lot of people would just show up, show their ID, go on the ballot box and, and do all kinds of stuff. But those people now... People are saying, well, is this a case confirmed for me? If, if, if I vote for an independent, is, does that then potentially help Labor getting into power with even less than 50% of the vote now because it's potentially taken those votes away from the other big party that had a chance to beat them? Um, break that down for me, how it all works. We do know that independents do carry weight, as we have seen with the, the pandemic bill legislation with a few independent, independents rolling over that you know, coincidentally got what they wanted at a, at a micro level as well. But just break all that down. If, if I was to vote for an independent, can it, can, it, can it make a major swing? Can it hurt Labor? Can it help Labor? Break it down for me, David. Yeah, well, uh, look, firstly, um, I'm not an independent, so I'm part of a party, the Liberal Democrats. But you're right that um, it doesn't, you don't, voting for a minor party doesn't necessarily stop you know, a, a, a major party that you want being elected because uh, we have this wonderful thing in Australia, the prefer preferential voting system. So if you said, for example, okay, I really like the Liberal Democrats and I want to give my v first vote for them, that's fine. And then if you really don't like Labor, you can put them at the bottom. And if you if you think, look, you know, I, I don't like the Liberal Party that much, but I prefer them to Labor, well, you put them higher up your ticket than Labor and that's how your vote will be counted. So, you know, in a preferential system, you don't have, you know, voting for a minor party doesn't uh, take away the preference that will go to the major party that you might prefer because you have this preferential system. So we're really lucky in Australia that we do have that system. I think people get confused with other countries that have like a first-past-the-post system um, or, or countries like America where, you know, that might be the case that if you vote for a minor party, it might help a bad party that you don't like get elected, but that's certainly not the case in Australia. So, you know, you just preference them in the order that you like and then that's how it will get counted and you know if you prefer if you if you're in this position like you said where you know I don't really like the liberals that much but I prefer them to labor then just put them higher up the ticket than labor and you're all good 
Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, that, I mean, that, it's valid concerns. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't. It doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt the Liberal Party to vote. For example, it doesn't hurt them if someone votes for a minor party and preferences Liberal above Labor. Okay, I see what you're saying. So they could do whatever. If it was an independent first, second, third, as long as as long as five and six, five has Liberal, six is Labor, then it, 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 that's that's factored in. Yeah, yeah, that's factored in. So you know, if the party that you put as your first preference doesn't get elected, then it goes down the list, and eventually it'll get to a major party, and then that major party will get your your vote, and it'll help them get elected. So, uh, look, I think um, you know, I'm I'm all for. Um, people supporting minor parties. If you want more diversity in politics, certainly look at their policies, look at the people that are running and, you know, whether you agree with them or not. And, you know, if you agree with what they stand for, then, you know, by all means put them up higher up and it's not going to hurt the chances of, of major parties at all. And they can hold some power in, in cases <laughs> like we've had in COVID. The only sort of influence that we have at a federal level is with how to vote cards, which are basically just suggestions to people, so we might we might talk with other parties and and hand out a how to vote card, which has our you know recommended preferences. But ultimately, people don't need to follow that; they can vote however they like. So, um, you know, we can we can make a suggestion, and and most parties do make suggestions on you know how they would like people to vote. But you don't have to follow that; people can choose to vote however they like. Okay, makes sense. Where to for at least Victoria from here? Um, we've got mid-COVID, post-COVID. Um, what do you see kind of in the horizon? I mean, we spoke about things that um, have affected people. COVID aside, these are, these are just some things I'm going to run through that um, I, I, I anticipate causing further issues um, post-COVID, whenever that may be. So you've got the mental health, you've got you know, suicide levels, job loss, isolation, financial distress, domestic violence, depression, uh, weight gain, unhealthy habits, um, the children children being schooled via a screen for 12 hours a day and lack of, lack of social interaction um, and, and many, 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 many more factors. Um, do you see that as, as now something that the government, whoever's elected, is going to make that their, you know, pledge to tax us more on fixing all those problems? What do you see on the horizon? How do we get out of this? And, and what's the future look like for Victoria slash Australia? Well, I think you have to look at the underlying cause of all of those harms that you've spoken about is really, you know, the government would say, well, the harm is from COVID, but really the harm is from taking away people's liberty, right? Um, You know, taking away your freedom to have a job, taking away your freedom to go to school and do all the, and leave your house and all these things. And so my focus is on returning people's freedoms as much as possible as soon as possible, and also um, looking deeply into what, you know, has actually gone on throughout the pandemic. Because I don't think that we've really uh, looked at it in so much detail. I mean, that was why I tried to get onto the Public Accounts and Estimates Committee, was to try and look at that. And we did see it, some of the harms that were caused. But ultimately, I think, and this is what caused me to be convinced to run for the Senate, federally is I think there needs to be a a royal commission into investigating the pandemic response in Australia and looking at what governments actually did and what sort of harms they caused and learning from these mistakes, hopefully, so that we never do these, you know, some of these mistakes again. But I think, um, 
it's going to quickly switch to economic issues because we've got some very, very dark clouds on the horizon. We've run out uh, enormous amounts of debt, uh, both in the public sector and privately. We've got inflation is coming out of, of the US. Oof, yep. And that's turning out to be a big issue. And some of the things that they've done in the pandemic response have like really contributed to that, you know, like the idea of, you know, sacking unvaccinated workers, you know, that's going to increase inflation. Um, uh, interruption to global supply chains through these COVID restrictions has increased inflation. Um, government's spending money going into huge debt. All these things are pumping up inflation. Um, uh, restrictive energy policies, you know, making petrol and, uh, and other, other energy really expensive. These are all pushing up inflation. I think over the next year, this is going to turn out to be a really, really big issue. Uh, and we're going to have to figure out ways of getting out of this debt. But like you say, um, a lot of these uh, harms, like, you know, mental health harms and that, like, yes, there needs to be some sort of response from government to fix it. But I think the first response should be to give people's freedom back as soon as possible, because that's what's causing the harm in the first place. Yeah, no doubt. And that's that's the scary thing. Um, it just, but it just seems like a government play now to... Well, the Labor gets in that, well, are we going to fix the mental health issues? Well, they were self-inflicted. There's a real philosophical divide that's been displayed here. Like, they think that um, whatever harms they cause, they they think that they have this godlike power to be able to fix those harms and mitigate those harms. So they're like, well, you know, we've caused these harms and they recognise that the harms exist, but then they just think that they can throw money at it and it'll fix it. And, of course... That's not the case. Like usually, what happens is they end up wasting heaps of heaps of money, uh, expanding the bureaucracy, um, more red tape, um, more stupid programs that waste money. Um, really, it's I'd rather them go about you know preventing the harm in the first place and being very very careful about any sort of restrictions that they put on people's lives. Especially with a one size fits all approach, that that's the the killer. It's just you know the the, the switch on switch off. I think people, you know, people are just so scared now. Um, I know a lot of people have tuned out at these press conferences. People are just so scared of hearing that word lockdown again. I hope we don't have another one. I mean, Omicron variant reportedly much less severe as far as hospitalizations. Um, I think the case numbers I read the, I read the other day that um, one the case numbers are spiking since December fifth. Um, not sure at what what X, but like double, triple, whatever. Um, but our hospitalizations have gone from one percent to 0.33, which is a great sign. Um, hopefully, hopefully that continues the trend, and we see this one as, as a as a mild, mild um, variant. I guess just to wrap up, what's your what's your thoughts on? Um, I cook foods and the direction that's going. I mean, I know you were you were part of the part of the inquiry that I watched that I was pulling my hair out watching. Um, how did how did you see all that going? Can you comment on it really? But I mean, just a, a dismal oh, look, it, dismal part of Victorian politics. Yeah, look, I mean, there's been you know two inquiries now into it in Parliament. Um, I think ultimately it's going to have to be decided through the courts because there's still a lot of questions here about what's going on. A lot of the things from the, you know, like the thing that got me all along was, uh, and I asked about it during the inquiry, was why was there a slug there in the first place? Because, uh, you know, it was the middle of summer, right? And I'm no expert on uh, on insects and, you know, entomology, entomology but um, I've never seen slugs in the middle of summer. And Nocturnal too, during the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And... <laughs> 
you know, you think, well, slug's going to have to come in from outside and apparently the area outside the, the factory was, you know, it was all concrete. Uh, you can imagine, you know, a concrete surface, and this was in really hot weather, a concrete surface in really hot weather, you know, slugs aren't going to go on that, I, don't, I wouldn't think. Um, so, you know, you say, well, how did it get there? And it just seems really weird. And the question I asked was, you know, have you ever seen a slug in the middle of summer like this? And the answer was no. And I'm like, well, you know, but like, I don't know the answers. And there's so many questions here still. So I think it's going through the courts is my understanding. So I think ultimately that's probably where they're going to have to get to the bottom of it because I feel like there's still, even after these inquiries, there's still a lot of questions that need answering. And it's such a complex case now. I mean, I've had I've had the cooks on numerous times on my podcast and you try to, some people have said, should they just concentrate on one area of it and really hit that hard like the slug? And they're like, well, we can't because each, each you know, detail we find leads to another detail, leads to another detail. And there's just all these branches of the tree that we're finding that lead to the tree, but we have to explain it all chronologically. And it's it's just one of the most to me it's one of the most intriguing cases of 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 government corruption that we've ever had in Australian history as far as you know the tentacles uh, through councils and it's clear as day in my opinion what's happened um, with no dog in the race and it's just just a shame that you know that that is a blight on the Victorian government and they've, they've somewhat been unscathed media wise it got a little bit of attention but just one that I'm watching closely I know you were involved in as well but wrapping up we wish you the best of luck. Um, going federal, even leaving leaving the state of Victoria politically, at least. Um, hopefully, that can that can have a you know give Victoria some wins with having you up there. But anything else you want to finish with before we let you go? Look, I think um, just just finally on this um, on the iCook Foods case, I think the the most fascinating thing to me about it was that it's a microcosm of what has happened throughout the pandemic, where you have a health issue that there's been a massive response to that which has been disproportionate and has caused great harm. Now, in this case, the great harm was to iCook Foods and their workers and families. But, you know, this sort of mentality is really what's happened throughout the entire pandemic where you have this disproportionate response. And I think we need to think very carefully going forward about, you know, whenever that we have these responses, they always talk about the precautionary principle. I think we need to apply the precautionary principle to government responses as well. And I, I, that's what I'd like people to, to take away is think about, you know, let's, let's be careful about diseases and things, but let's also be careful about taking government action because we know that it causes these terrible harms that we've seen. Yeah, the snowball effect, especially considering Dan and Ong, I mean, I grew up there, is a is 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 or hopefully was labour heartland. To treat a small business that way, um, just switch them off, and then the depths to go to to keep them switched off, um, a staff of 40, 40 or fifty odd people, some special needs, you know, been noted by Ian Cook that they supported the special needs community and hired many people from that community, which was sensational. It's it's just um, mind blowing that it is you know it should have been a business that um, arguably we all could have been proud of. With let's not forget they they had a a world power technology which they're still working on, um, which was going to get picked up by the UAB and even the US, and we could have said that that was from from Danong, Victoria of all places. You know, um, there's not many things that that we can say come out of Danong that are that are world beaters and that would have been one and we didn't have that opportunity. So disappointing. But David Limbrick, I thank you. Um, I think everybody in Victoria 
would like to thank you for standing up for for what is right in in, in most people's opinions, whether you um, agree with the Labor government or not. I think most people are pretty similarly minded about about mandates and knowing you know the the long arm arm of mandates can continue on if you let them let them in the door and that's what we're kind of seeing right now but i think people appreciate the fight that you've put up i know i have i've, I've followed you for a long time and, and really appreciate someone in parliament not afraid to, to get amongst it and, and voice their opinion and even potentially get booted out of parliament for a long stretch there so uh, we appreciate you thanks a lot for having me